This is Michael Govier from the Is It Safe podcast, and you are now clear for communication with Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 244, The Exorcist Movie Review. Chris McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, we decided it might be worthwhile to take a look back at some films that are celebrating major milestones. So we wanted to take a look back at a film celebrating its 50th anniversary. So I nominated The Exorcist from 1973 for us to go back and watch and then review here on the show. But before we get around to that, what pop culture can you educate me on this week, Derek? Been busy with stuff? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I've been busy outside of work and outside of uh, pop culture, but I, mm-hmm. I found some time to squeeze a few things in, including a documentary at the end. Oh, nice. All right. Uh, I'll try to get through these quickly as we've been trying to get through mm-hmm. the Fast Five. All right. Uh, first, I got to see a new movie that just came out last year, uh, the third installment by Kevin Smith in his Clerks franchise simply titled clerks three mm. uh we had to rent it from Dan- from amazon it's not uh, widely available in theaters he- he's doing that whole um press tour thing where he like goes and takes the movie on the road and then does a big q a after it when he did uh giant silent bob reboot a couple of years ago my wife and i had a chance to go out and see that it was a really good experience if you're a fan of his work it's, it's a lot of fun we didn't have a chance to do the clerks three one when they came through toronto but uh it's available and we thought let's give it a watch and i i really enjoyed it if you like his work i thought it was really good but uh i will will state this that I do not think Clerks 3 should be classified as a comedy where the first two definitely were comedies. This one is more a drama that has some funny parts, but it works. It's very uh, self-referential and uh, a lot of uh, inside jokes and uh, wink, wink at the camera kind of stuff. But if you like Kevin Smith, this is more the same. Uh, If you're not a fan of his work, give it a pass. But I I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, so we were glad we had a chance to watch that one. So so I have a question for you. Yes. So back in 1994, when Clerks came out, I went to see it in the movie theater and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It was really original and stuff. And then now I haven't seen the sequel, Clerks 2. And so now this Clerks 3, when did this come out? You're, you're saying, sorry, it was last year that it came out? Yeah, it was, uh, it was shot and came out last year. And the good thing about the way he's done this is the movie is supposed to take place in the year it was made. So a big part of this Clerks 3 is the fact that these guys are now 50 years old and they're still doing a lot of the same things they were doing when they were in their early 20s and their lives really didn't go in the direction they expected them to. And and that's a big part of it. And a lot of what's in here that the characters do and say are things that Kevin Smith himself has done or said or experienced. And um, as someone who is pretty much in that age bracket, a lot of this movie really spoke to me, as a lot of Kevin Smith stuff has over the years. Like he and I are almost the same age and have a lot of the same interests. So, again, not for everybody. Is it in like black and white? This one is not in black and white. There are a couple of scenes that are in black and white for specific effect, but that it makes perfect sense in the context of the movie as to why. Um, but otherwise, no, just just the first one he did was in black and white. Okay. 
All right. Had a chance to uh, revisit a movie from 2002 called About a Boy starring Hugh Grant. I saw this not long after it came out in 2000, probably 2003. And it was decent. Um, I, 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 I liked it, but I didn't love it. And then it was on TV this week. And I thought, you know what? I, I sort of remember this movie being OK. And I liked it a lot more the second time through, um, especially because the uh, the young kid who is the boy in the title about a boy um, has grown up to do a lot of stuff. He was in the uh, X-Men movie franchise as the beast. He was in uh, Mad Max uh, Fury Road as the the guy who's like all in the gray uh, makeup. Witness me and, shh, and he spray paints his teeth and stuff. So he's he's done a lot. He was in the new movie, The Menu, that I just watched as well. So I honestly I can't think of the dude's name, but uh, you see him in this one. He's like 10 years old. It was pretty decent. And Hugh Grant does a really good job. So it was a fun little movie to revisit. Hugh Grant was a real thing for a while there. I remember yeah. like all the girls loved him and they go, oh, he and he became this big movie star. And then all of a sudden he ends up and, and he's dating like Elizabeth Hurley, who at the time was like, you know, this beautiful model. And, you know, she's sophisticated and everything else. And then he gets um, gets caught in like a car with for Divine Brown, I think was her name, if I remember. So I don't know how I remember that. But with this prostitute and it was just like and I remember his mug shot and everything. And yep. then his his career really took a hit. You know, for well, he's bounced. He bounced back. I mean, uh, he 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 had a lot of uh, pretty decent successes since then, and uh, yeah, I think most people are willing to forget about that all these years later. Um, mm-hmm. Had a chance to watch the Oscar-nominated Banshees of Inisherin with Colin Farrell in the lead. Uh, it's on Disney Plus, and let me tell you, I didn't have any concept about what this movie was going to be about. Uh, Based on the title, how the hell do you figure out what it's about? That's weird. Yeah, I I didn't know. And I really won't spoil it for people who are interested in seeing it that haven't seen it. But it was really slow, really boring, really long. I felt the last sort of 20 minutes, there was a marginal payoff. But I had to sit through a lot of stuff to get there. Definitely um, the kind of movie that like traditionally has been Oscar nominated. I can see why like a lot of old people are like, yes, this movie is a great work of art. And the performances were good. Don't get me wrong. Like Colin Farrell, I think it deserves the nomination he got. But man, this movie was slow. Not for like talk about not for everybody. This one is not for everybody. I think people are going to go see it thinking, oh, it's this award nominated movie. And you're like, you're going to be disappointed. So I remember yeah. when um, when Yancey was back on the show. Oh, one time he made me watch a Colin Farrell movie that was same thing, slow, boring, dumb. It was called The Lobster. Yeah, I've oh, heard a lot of bad things about it. that one. Never oh, watched it. Kay watched it. My wife watched it. She said it was awful. She's like, you oh, would hate it. And I said the same thing to this to her. I'm like, you will hate this movie. She's yeah. like, I'm not giving it two hours of my life. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, the Oscar nominations came out. We can talk about that in a minute. But, uh, yeah, so Banshees of Inner Sharon. Uh, and then. My wife and I were looking for something new to watch. As you often mention on this podcast, what's something we could binge watch? So we were just cycling through on Netflix. And the good thing about Netflix, one of the things I think is a good thing about Netflix is the algorithms tend to start doing a pretty good job of saying, well, you've watched these movies. Maybe this is something you'll dig. And most often it says you might like this. And I'm like, yeah, of course I like it. I've already seen it. But we started looking for a TV show and we found this show called Salvation. It originally aired on CBS for two seasons in 2017 and 2018. Neither of us had ever heard of it or seen a single episode. The first season was shot in Toronto. The second season was shot in Vancouver. It's full of Canadian uh, cast. And I'm sure that obviously since they shot it in Canada, a lot of people working behind the scenes were Canadian. And the idea is that uh, in the first episode, they discover an asteroid is headed for Earth. It's going to slam into Earth in 165 days and destroy everybody. 
And then what do you think happens? Well, some people want to try and stop the asteroid. Some people want to build an escape ship. And we're only about seven or eight episodes into the first season. And so far it's been, it's like a tight secret. So only a handful of people know about it, but we're really digging it. Like I'm really hoping that it didn't just end at the end of season two and then was like canceled, no satisfying ending. Cause I'm going to be pretty ticked off, but so far I'm really enjoying it. It's called salvation. Mm. Uh, I really actually really enjoyed it. The first time that I saw it when it was called Armageddon. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of something mm-hmm. like that. And the main guy in this salvation is uh, he was in the recent um, Star Trek Picard series as like the uh, the ruthless scoundrel, sort of the Han Solo type character. Mm-hmm. So when as soon as we saw him, we're like, oh, I know that guy. It turns out he's British and he's all like clean cut. And it's like, wow, he really, really changed his appearance from uh, how they have him looking in uh, in Star Trek Picard. But in any case, that that one's my recommendation. Salvation. We watched we're most way through his first season. And then finally, I have a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Oh, do tell. So this is going to be the most Canadian thing on this podcast. (laughs) Besides me? (laughs) This documentary aired on the CBC. It's written and directed by uh, Jason Priestley of 90210 fame, mm-hmm. also Canadian, yeah. and it's called Offside, the Harold Ballard story, which oh, for people who don't know, Harold Ballard owned the Toronto Maple Leafs for like 20 years and ran them into the ground. And I really didn't know a lot about him because Harold Ballard was having his like his heyday in the 70s and 80s. And yeah. I was still a little kid back then, so I didn't know any of this stuff. So it was interesting to get a biography of his entire life. And there were so many interviews with like the former players and the former agents and the former managers and the former coaches. And wow, this guy did a lot of crazy stuff. And uh, this, this documentary was really interesting. And believe me, if you're a Canadian and you're a hockey fan, you need to watch this. Like it, it is the most Canadian thing you can do this week. Take a look. It's on the CBC. I'm sure it's available on demand. It was uh, two hours with commercials. I, I managed to skip through most of the commercials. It was about 90 minutes, but uh, it was it was excellent. It was really good. Have you did you hear about this, Chris? Did you have I've, to see the line? I've heard of it. I haven't watched it, but I'm obviously familiar with Harold Ballard because, I mean, his basic premise was why would I spend money on good players when the building is full every night, no matter what? So yeah, he just had absolutely. crappy teams out there. And you know what? That was 100% he, his motto. Yeah. For, as a businessman, he was right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't matter. It didn't matter what the team was he put out there. So he just wanted to make money. And that's what he did. Oh, and he made money hand over fist. It was, yeah. Absolutely. Some of the things he did were despicable and deplorable. And like they, they show like he was super racist. He was super misogynistic. Oh, yeah. He was homophobic. And it was just like back then they're like, oh, well, that's just how old white people are. And it was just like, wow. By today's lens, like it did not age well. And believe me, even by the, the, the lens of then, it did not age well. But he was certainly a, a, a character, to put it to put it mildly. So mm. if you're a Canadian, take a look for it. It's called Offside, the Harold Ballard Story. Nice. Now, you went over your five minutes like by double. But I mean, I let you away because I was talking to you, you. You jumped in there a few yeah. times. So, so uh, Derek, you know how on Facebook... You know where those notifications pop up and they show you like events that your friends are like interested in attending? Oh, I get those all the time. Comic convention coming up. Yeah. These nerdy friends of yours are going. I was yeah, like, oh, exactly. good. So my wife sends me this link and she's like, I want to go to this. And I look and it's a link to a Billy Idol concert that's coming up in May or something, I think. And then I go onto Facebook and I see one of these notifications and it's about you, Derek. It says Derek Myers is interested in in attending the Billy Idol concert. So what's the deal? Are we going or what? Well, I already got my tickets. So as you may remember, a couple of years back, 
Journey was touring with Billy Idol. And so my wife and I got tickets. And then because of COVID and pandemic and all sorts of stuff, the concert got delayed and rescheduled and delayed and rescheduled. And then Billy Idol got COVID and they're like, okay, he's going to be dropped off the bill. You're going to get ready for this. Toto! It has a replacement. And we were like, wah, wah, I'll take the refund. And then that got rescheduled. And they're like, wait a minute, Toto can't make it. We're like, yay, we're going to get Billy Idol. And they're like, you're getting Ann Wilson of Heart. Okay, well, that's definitely a step up from Toto, but still not Billy Idol. And we were like, yeah, okay, we'll go. Then that got canceled. And they're like, okay, Journey coming back to Toronto in March. We're like, great, do we get Billy Idol? They're like, no, you get Toto again. I'm like, damn it. And then Billy Idol's like, I'm going on tour by myself. I want all the money. And we're like, okay, well, I guess if we want to see Billy Idol, we need to go by ourselves and go see him. So yeah, we're going to go. We got tickets this week. And there's a few of our other friends that are going to see Journey. They were like, we're going as well. So there's a bunch of us going to go see him in uh, in Niagara Falls. Well, we'll have to talk hopefully about this. Hopefully he doesn't get COVID again. And hopefully yeah. he doesn't cancel and reschedule again. We'll have to talk about this because maybe we can go together. Because, I mean, my wife wants to yeah. go. The last concert that I saw with you was when we went to go see um, ZZ Top at Casino Rama. That was awesome, too. I remember well, that. Well, hopefully, hopefully we're not cursed because, I mean, we saw that show and then, like, what was it, like a year later, one of the members of the band died. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that had nothing to do with our participation in a concert a year earlier, but I'd hate to go see this show and then this time next year, Billy Idol drops dead. Yeah, or his guitar player dies. Who's opening up for Billy Idol? Did they mention? I Honestly, I don't know. I know there's an opening act. I, I just I mm-hmm. honestly don't remember who it was. It wasn't a name that I was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to see that band, but... We'll see. Well, no, they sometimes add special. Maybe we get like Honeymoon Suite. They're from Niagara Falls. Maybe they'll call them up and go, come on, guys. You only have to play for 30 minutes. Come on, do your greatest hits. They're awesome. They're awesome. Although you mentioned about Hart. I would rather see Hart than Billy Idol. Like, I mean, did you say Hart was opening for Billy Idol? Billy Idol should be opening up for Hart. uh, Ann Wilson of Hart is doing a solo tour to promote an album she put out a few months ago. And uh, so she was going to be opening for Journey in place of Billy Idol. Oh, I see. Billy Idol was supposed to be opening for Journey. Oh, well, well, hopefully maybe we'll uh, make it to another concert together. But yeah, uh, for sure, for all sure. All right, that'd be kind of cool. In the meantime, we got this. Here's your dad joke of the week. So, Derek, since we're reviewing The Exorcist this week, I thought I'd do a related dad joke. Okay? Is it about eggs or is it about the church? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, okay. Well, well, actually, Derek, did I ever tell you about the time that my friend had an exorcism and refused to pay? No. He got repossessed. Oh, my God. Oh, well, you get what you pay for, don't you? Both mm-hmm. with this joke and with the exorcism. Oh, I, I got a dirty one, too. Have you oh. ever heard of a reverse exorcism? No, I have not. It's where the devil the devil tries to get the priest out of the... Oh, man. <laughs> Any opportunity to sing a song. I'm the OG. Yeah, I'm the OG. There are some... Huge red flags. I am the one with full of gold. For people that listen to this show on like 1.2 or 1.5 times speed, it should be fine. Memory suck in every single way. Okay. Caveman watching old movie. Over and over and over again. Derek's documentary. Well, like I said, it's it's growing on me. All right, Derek, so we each wanted to pick a film celebrating its 50th anniversary. So, you know, next week you get to do your pick. 
So yes, in, I do. in the meantime, I wanted to go with The Exorcist. And um, when I mentioned this last time out, you said you hadn't seen the film, I think since like the early 90s or something like like 30 years ago, yeah. is that right? So I've only seen the movie once before okay. and I saw it when I was working at Blockbuster Video. Shocking, I know. That's when I seem to have seen every movie I had not seen up until that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, horror, not really my genre, but no. again, horror, horror is a broad genre. So to say like, I don't like horror, it's maybe a little too all encompassing. And I think for me, it's more like, I don't like gory, like horror movies where there's like all these bloods and guts and gore and savagery. And and this is not about that. And so I do remember enjoying it somewhat and sort of being like, well, I'm glad I saw it, but that's really all I need. And it's been like 25 years. So this was this, I said to my wife, I watched it today and I was like, I really didn't remember very much. There were only a couple of little parts I remember, but for the rest of it, it was like coming to it brand new. Okay, so you watched it today, and we're going to do a deep dive on this movie in a bit, obviously. But to start things off, so Derek, let's be honest. You're the one around here that's up on recent pop culture, right? So the question that I want to know to start things off, is The Exorcist still scary to audiences in 2023? No, absolutely not. Really? Well, I mean, I don't think so. And I think, yeah. so and we'll get into it, but I I, I knew you were going to ask me something like Mm -hmm. this. And I kept thinking that myself. I'm like, would I classify this as a horror movie if it came out today and it was made in this same kind of way? And I know I don't think so because I think I I was reading up on some of the trivia on this movie, as I often do after we, after we watch a movie and there was something like, 490 points in the IMDb and like I couldn't even get through it all I read it for like an hour and I was like wow there is people have a lot of things to say about this movie and a lot of it talked about how when it came out people were like fainting in the movie and there was like mass hysteria and like groups that were seeing this movie was banned in all these places and I think 50 years ago the the relationship people had with their church and their faith is very different than that of today i think today especially a lot of young people wouldn't consider themselves religious wouldn't consider themselves extremely uh like faithful in the sense of like do you say your prayers every night before bed do you go to church every sunday like i just don't think a lot of young people have that level of of piety today and i think that's that's really the difference i think 50 years ago if you were in a household where it was like we're a strong religious household we go to church every sunday we say grace before every meal I think this movie might have spoken to you and, and scared you in a different way mm-hmm. today. I just don't I just don't see it happening. I think a lot of people are going to just be like, that's phony baloney. And uh, this is a flight of fantasy. Whereas 50 years ago, I think I think people were were more devout and they mm-hmm. genuinely believed what was being de- depicted on the screen. So, just my yeah, thought. I think that's a, that's a good point. I think that's definitely part of it. The only argument I'd make against that is you're definitely right that back then I think there were there was more more people were more religious I think as a just as a general rule you know 50 years ago um but I think at the time a lot of the people that were really devout and religious wouldn't go see this movie either their church told them not to go so they didn't go or they just didn't go I think you know if you think back to 1974 there's no internet there's no slasher films there's no snuff films there's nothing right. like Saw or any of that garbage that came out in the 2000s. So basically, my theory is that audiences today, I think, are more jaded than they were back in 74. Oh, definitely. Because like you mentioned, back then, I mean, people were leaving the theater. They were vomiting. They were fainting. Ushers had to figure out how to deal with people fainting 
during the screenings of this film back in 74. And there was all this word of mouth about the movie, you know, and it was just people being terrified by it. So the one fact I wanted to just just mention going into this, I had never, before today, or I watched it yesterday, before then, I had never seen this movie from start to finish in one viewing. I'd seen bits and pieces of it here and there, but I'd never actually sat down for a full viewing before watching it. So one thing I do remember, I want to bring up, it just came to my mind. Um, I remember there was an old SNL sketch back in the 70s with Richard Pryor as the guest host. Yeah. And they did this parody of The Exorcist. Lorraine Newman played the possessed girl. And I remember the bed was levitating and the two priests, one of them was Pryor. And they just kept chanting, the bed must be on the floor. The bed must be on the floor. The bed must be on the floor. And it drops. And Pryor goes, the bed is on my foot. And I don't remember it was okay, really funny. I do remember like, that now. Yeah. It was, I don't know. I thought, so that came to my mind when I was watching it. But uh, okay, so let's talk about some details of this film. So it was released on December the 26th, 1973. So right at the end of the year. So it did most of its box office in 74. It had a budget of about $12 million. It went over budget quite a bit during production, but it ended up making $441 million worldwide. Like it was yeah, a lot of the a lot of the trivia I was reading saying adjusted for inflation, this would have been the most successful horror movie ever released. And I think they said it was the movie from Warner Brothers that would have made the most money adjusted for inflation. Like the number the box office numbers it did were ridiculous. And I think that builds on what you were saying, where no press is bad press. And when you have groups protesting your movie, it makes other people want to see it that much more oh what's all the hype about i wasn't planning to see this but if all these people are saying not to well now i want to see it and i i think that definitely inadvertently helped get those numbers up the fact that the movie was really good helped as well i think when people saw it they're like not only should you see this but you should see it because it's actually a good movie oh yeah it was good and it was directed by william friedkin now he directed a few films in the 70s and 80s but his real accomplishments were this and the french connection which came out in 71 he won an Oscar for directing French Connection. That movie was really good, too. It was. Um, I think it's worth mentioning the author as well, William Peter Blatty. He wrote the book, The Exorcist, in 71, and then he wrote the screenplay for this movie, and he won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for this script. And I think he was pretty hands-on during the production of the film as well. Um, so we always talk about the box office of the movie. It was actually really difficult for me to find box office receipt numbers for calendar years back this far. So I actually had to settle for the box office performance based on the year of release, you know? And like I said, this matters because The Exorcist was released on December the 26th, 1973. So it did almost all of its box office in 74. But for movies released in 73, Exorcist was number one in the domestic U.S. box office. $193 million, followed by The Sting, American Graffiti, Papillon, and The Way We Were. In 1974, um, it still, it, it took the, the, the top notch. Blazing Saddles did $119 million, The Towering Inferno, and then The Trial of Billy Jack. Go figure. So, so the movie was a phenomenon. You know, and audiences obviously connected with it and made a lot of money. But I want to also talk about the cast because they had a lot of trouble casting this film. Not a lot of big movie stars wanted to do it, so they had to go with lesser known actors. So obviously, let's start with Linda Blair. 
<laughs> that's, I think that's the, that's the best place to start. I actually went to her Q&A at, the, at Fan Expo in Tor- Toronto in 2016. You were at that. But you didn't go to see her, right? No, I'm not a big fan of doing the whole panel thing. That When I go to a con, I'm usually there to do other events. But Yeah, no, I like that stuff. So it was by far the smallest of the Q&As that I attended. It was this really small room. And she wouldn't, I remember she wouldn't allow anyone to take out their camera. Like, and no, none of the other celebrities I went to, they didn't care about that. But she did. Yeah. So a couple of things that struck me about her. Number one was her face. So especially when she turned sideways, I was like, wow, she has had a lot of plastic surgery done. And the reason I mentioned it, like, you know, I, I just, I think it's almost too bad because she always had this kind of adorable kind of girl next door look to her. You know, even when she was doing Playboy and, and, and those women prison movies in the 80s and stuff, like she was just, she was just cute, you know? And I, I just feel like it would have been kind of great to see her age naturally, you know, without all this weird plastic surgery. So that was one thing I noticed. Other thing I noticed about her, she is one weird person. Like, I thought she was on drugs or something when she was there. Like, it was just, it was, she was that weird. I mean, I get it. She's Linda Blair. You know, I mean, she played a 12-year-old girl possessed by the devil, you know, I mean, that's got to have some sort of long-term effect on anyone, yeah. you know, yeah. but she was just weird. And like, she's, I know she's got this animal rescue charity thing going on. Like she mentioned it in the Q and a, but instead of like just talking about her charity, I remember she stood up and she's like, I'm going to show you all how you walk a dog. And she turns sideways and just like pretends like she's walking a dog. And it was just weird. <laughs> she's a weirdo. But that being said, she was amazing in this movie, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, that's always the thing when you do. Uh, what What is that? That old adage in in uh, in Hollywood? It's like the worst people to use in your movie are little kids and animals because they're the yeah. hardest to work with. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, whenever you have a movie where there's a, a child performer, you never know what you're gonna get. And when they're good, you know, it can make or break your movie. Like, can you imagine the Sixth Sense if the little kids sucked? Like, the movie wouldn't work. So I think same with this. You needed to have a, a performer who even at that young age could could deliver a, a believable performance. And given some of the things that her character had to do and say and and perform, like you got to think for her character was 12. I'm sure she was actually a couple years older when she made the movie. I think she was but, about 13 or 14 when they shot it. But it's it. like yeah. that. some of that stuff is is pretty mature content. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I'm not naive enough to believe that she didn't understand what the character was saying, but to have to be in that position, it's, you, you need a level of maturity to to do it and to do it successfully. And, uh, you know, I mean, it may have messed up her life. That might have been part of it. But uh, I always remember her from because, uh, again, I'm not really familiar with the Exorcist movie. I uh, hadn't seen it in a long, long time. But uh, when we did our, our podcast a few a few weeks ago, or I guess a couple months ago now about um, B movies, mm-hmm. uh, my one of my picks, I think it might have been my number one was a movie called Night Patrol. Oh yeah, it's like a spoof of a of yep. like a cop movie. She's she was the in female that. lead yep. in that. Yeah. Yep. So that that's always where I remember the grown-up Linda Blair from. Uh, not that I remember that movie that often, but whenever I do think of it, that's that's part of what I remember. Well, they had a couple of stand-ins for her. So one they had one stand-in for some of the scenes like where with the crucifix and stuff like that. They had um a different girl stand in for her for that. And then they had a different um actress do the voice, you know, when she was possessed. 
Yeah, I read a lot of the controversy around that. But I mean, they must have had trouble casting this part. At one point, they offered the role to the little girl from the Willy Wonka movie. Her mom, I guess, read it and said, nope, she ain't doing that. (laughs) She ain't going from, you know, doing Oompa Loompas and and dancing to this. So, but yeah, um, sorry, I was. And when I was reading through the trivia on this, mm-hmm. you sh- there's a long list of performers that that went to audition for the various parts and were either turned down or, t- like you said, a lot of big names for the adult parts were offered roles and they were like, I'm not appearing in that thing. And a lot of them said it was because of their religious beliefs mm-hmm. or they didn't want to be in a movie where they would um, find themselves up against the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons that people didn't want to do this movie. So I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Like casting this movie had to have been incredibly difficult, uh, both for the kids and the adult roles. And, and, and for Linda Blair, you know, like she, she went out to do some other things, like some other horror type parts, mostly just in these low grade B movies, you know, she was, and then she was in that prison movie Chained Heat and she was in Roller Boogie and Hell Night. And then she was back in prison with red heat again. But the thing is, it's, it must have been really hard for her because I think if any actor in Hollywood history has ever been typecast, it's got to be her. Like, that's got to be really hard to get away from this this yeah. role as but, a possessed child. But this happens, right, with genre movies. You see this happen in science fiction all the time. Like, think of basically, like, someone like Luke Hamill or, um, you know, like a lot of the Star Trek cast, like the, the Brent Spiner who played Mark Mr. Hamill. Data. Mark Hamill, of course. Yeah, and Mark Hamill would play the scour. Like, mm-hmm. they couldn't get real work. It was like everyone could only see them as this, this iconic character from this sci-fi franchise. And I think with horror movies, you have the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like... Uh, you know, because it's a very, um, I don't want to say niche genre, but the fans of those genres are pretty extreme and in many cases extreme in the most passionate way. Like they love these performers and they they want to see them continue to do the kind of things that they've enjoyed in the past. And I think that people that make TV and movies realize that they're like, well, if we cast this this person who was made famous from a, a horror movie and try and put them in like a teen comedy, it's probably not going to work. If we try and put them in like a movie where they're the love interest and they're supposed to be this serious person, like if you've, it, you know, if this is your background, it's it's hard for an audience to, to separate them. Uh, so I can totally understand how, how a lot of performers can get typecast based on, you know, when they have a, a, a role that makes them successful and it's an iconic role in this case from you know the number one movie of the year and it's you know she's such a young performer you didn't have other things to compare it to it's not like well it should be in these seven other things first this is it if this is what puts you on the main stage like this is your legacy forever and ever so i mean look at my idol henry winkler you know type yeah. for years the fawns couldn't get work absolutely right? yeah um so ellen burston played the mom in this and actresses like shirley mclean and jane fonda were considered the director actually even wanted to cast Carol Burnett at one Yeah, point. I read that. Yeah. He felt that she had the acting range, you know, to, to kind of pull it off. But they went with Ellen Burstyn, obviously. And she was in Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show in 71. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for that. And then she went on to do Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore with Scorsese. And she won the Oscar for Best Actress for that one. Um, and that movie, by the way, also went on to become the basis for the TV sitcom Alice. Right, yeah, you mentioned that before. Yeah, and Mel was played by Vic Tabak both in the movie and the TV show. Um, so anyway, Ellen Burstyn has obviously worked with some amazing directors over the years, and she's a very, very strong actress. But, I mean, this movie is, it's all about the daughter, obviously, you know, yeah. so she's overshadowed somewhat. I wanted to mention also Max von Sydow. Mm-hmm. My, so my first impression watching this, 
this movie opens up, you know, in, in his scene where he's in, in Iraq. And I'm like, man, Max von Sydow looks the same in 1973 as he did in The Force Awakens in 2015. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that he's aged well. Instead, I was like, man, that guy always looked like he was old. <laughs> and then, because I'm watching it on the big screen and in high def, in some of the close-ups, you can tell they've got him made up to look old. Yeah, yeah. He was only 44 when they shot this movie. Well, I read that when they sent him the script, he thought he was being cast for the role of the other priest. Right. Uh, and then when they're like, no, no, we want you to be this one. And he's like, uh, uh, you know, I'm nowhere near this age. They're like, oh, we'll use some makeup. We'll make you look old. You have the gravitas we feel this role needs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they want him to, to look like he was in his 70s. But man, you know, if you think about him, he has had one hell of a diverse acting career. He was in The Seventh Seal, directed by Igmar Bergman. He was in this movie, The Exorcist. And then on the flip side, he was in Strange Brew and Flash Gordon. <laughs> no, he was really good as being the merciless of that. But I mean, like, what a diverse career from this guy. Yeah. And then Jason Miller, also want to mention, he was the priest, uh, Father Damien Karras. He was a theater actor. He had never done a movie before this, but he had studied theology in university as well. And I guess one of the producers spotted him doing this play and they were like, hey, I think, I think we found our priest. And so they got him in there. Yeah, I thought he was really good. I, I thought he again, was good too. I, because I hadn't seen this movie in so long, so much of it was new. And and here, you know, he was a performer that I don't, I'm not really familiar with his work. Nope, me neither. Uh, I don't remember seeing him any in anything else. Um, and so when I watched this, I was like, wow, he's really good. And, and again, I forgot how much of the movie he's actually in. I'm like, this mm-hmm. movie, he's probably got equal screen time or more screen time than any of the other characters. It's like. He is in this a lot. Well, if you think about the title, the title is The Exorcist. And that could mean him or Max von Sydow, I guess, because he was brought in as the, you know, the elder one. But really, I think the movie is about him. Yeah. You know, as much as it's focused on Linda Blair's character, really, The Exorcist is is Jason Miller's character. But I want to mention a couple of scenes from this movie, because this is where people remember this stuff. So one of the first ones. The head spinning scene. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is one that had audiences freaked out. And and I think if you ask most people, you know, the most memorable part of The Exorcist, they probably mentioned this scene, you know, and, it, and the yeah, thing was, think. it yeah. wasn't in the script originally. And the author hated the idea. He was like, this movie is about the supernatural. It's not about the impossible your head can't turn around like that. And they use this lifelike dummy. And then he's like, this, this sucks. This is stupid. And then he realized, oh my God, it worked so well. Because when they went to do the scene, oh, it was so good. And one thing that they did was when they were shooting it, they were doing it in like that cold room. Mm-hmm. And they realized, oh, it's not exhaling. Everyone else in the room is exhaling. And the dummy isn't. So like there was no visible breath, you know, in the court. So they added this tube and it had an exhale. So you could see the breath and it just makes it even more terrifying when that scene comes on. So I think that's the scene that most people remember, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I would think so. And and again, I, I, as I'm reading through some of the notes, because there was some subtext in the movie that I wasn't completely clear on. So I looked up some of the specifics and I found like an article where it sort of compared what was in the book versus what was in the movie and why certain things were a certain way. And it was saying that in the book, this, or, or 
I assume it was from the book or it was written into the script was she was supposed to turn her neck halfway around and it was supposed to basically be um, an indication that she had indeed killed that other guy. Yes. Um, and so she was turning her neck in the same way that his mm -hmm. neck had been turned as like an indication of, hey, this isn't the first time you've seen this, is it? Mm -hmm. um, but instead for the movie, they made it turn all the way around. And apparently there was a disagreement on the set between the writer and the director. The writer saying like, no, no, no this is in here for this reason. You need to do it this way. And the directors misunderstood what it was supposed to do. He's like, I like that better. And so it stayed in. And to your point, it's like the most memorable thing. So the downside is it doesn't connect those dots as cleanly in the movie as it did in the book. And I don't think it matters if you don't make that connection, but upon reading it, I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that's an interesting little detail. So the crucifix scene is another one. And like I mentioned, it was mostly done by a stand in actress and she was older than Blair was. But again, this is a scene that had audiences just freaked out. And like you mentioned, like religion kind of gets people freaked out. But when you mix religion and like sex, this yeah. is going to make people very, very uncomfortable, especially in 1973. That's what I was especially about to say. Especially yeah. when it involves a 12-year-old girl, like yeah. very disturbing. And then when she grabs her mom's head and pushes it down, like, oh my, like that was gut-wrenching to watch today. So I could imagine back when it came out, like people just freaked out. Like they'd never seen anything like this in a Hollywood yeah. movie. They didn't know how to yeah. take it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, I think 50 years later, uh, people's understanding and people's attitudes towards sex and the availability of things on the internet, like it, these aren't necessarily concepts people find as foreign today as they might have 50 years ago. So much of this was like so taboo and secretive and uh you know just just a general awareness sort of thing but obviously the 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 violence around this and the you know the the fact that she is young is still still something when you watch it it makes you makes you wince as you see it happening so those two scenes stand out but i i the interesting thing about this movie is that probably the scene that freaked people out the most wasn't even a possession scene it was the angiography scene so, yeah, I read about that and it yeah. sort of, it, it, I, I didn't really get it, um, oh, it, it makes because it didn't bother me at all. Me. But I think that, yeah. again, I think it's a, a, of its time. Like today we get so many doctor shows that are so medically accurate and we see, so we become so desensitized to so much of this because it's so commonplace on TV and in movies now. I watched it and went, yeah, this actually looks pretty accurate for the time. And then I'm reading all the stuff about like how people freaked out over it. It was just like, oh, different time, right? 50 years ago, different context. When they put that needle in her neck and that blood squirts out, that was the scene that had people fainting in the movie theater. And for me, I think it's the direction that's just brilliant in this scene. If you're like a real film buff like I am, because like the director doesn't shoot this scene for any horror effects. No, he shoots it like it's a documentary. Just yeah. straight up shooting what's happening. There's no close-ups. There's no panning. There's no zooms, you know, for effect. It's just like if you're sitting in the room and watching this happen. And like I say, people freaked out, you know. Imagine 1973, 1974. You're in this dark theater and this scene comes on. People all around you are freaking out. There's people like fainting and vomiting. Back then, like, you just like, like there's no YouTube where you could watch this. Like, just like you said, there's no... TV show like Life in the ER you know, with right. all this graphic footage. Nobody had ever seen anything like this and it freaked people the hell out 
And and that was the scene, I think, that was the most impactful, believe it or not. All this, that blood shoots across her. Like, people just lost it. And it's like all the way down her leg and stuff. Like, oh, man. One thing I wanted to mention was the movie opens up with Max von Sydow on this excavation dig. And he finds this, like, small stone face. And I had to look it up. It's the head of Pazuzu is this yep. fictional demon from from the novel and then well, he I sees, mean, it's not it, it's fictional in the sense that you know i i think it's safe to say demons aren't real mm-hmm. but it is from actual like mythology oh, and yeah. religious belief like it's based on what what people actually believed hundreds of years right. ago i was reading up on that and then so then he sees this full-size statue of this pazuzu that has this like really large erect phallus Thing going yeah, on. I noticed that too. It's it's sort mm. of like off in the shadow. You don't get a clear, clear look at it. I'm like, is it a snake coming up beside him? Like, does he or is it a tail? But no, I think it's supposed to be yeah. an erection. And 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 the the thing for me was even after the film ended, I was trying to figure out why this opening scene existed. Like, was it him unleashing this demon when he found it? But if it was, like. How did it end up in like Washington D.C. possessing a twelve-year-old girl, and 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 I get how the scene is like all about foreshadowing, like with the dogs representing this like battle between good and evil or whatever the hell it was. But I I just wasn't sure if this whole part of the movie was even necessary at all. What do you think? Um. Well, I mean, to, again, this was something I had to sort of look up. The the implication, or at least what apparently was in the book, is the the quote unquote the demon. Let's assume for purposes of this movie, the demon exists. The demon basically got uh, exposed to uh, to uh, Reagan through the Ouija board. That's that's the implication. Is when she was playing with the Ouija board, the demon was like, ah, I can get in here um, now. Again, how come it goes around the world instead of trying to find someone a little more local? Who the heck knows? Um, and I think the implication to your point is, you know, does he release this demon or or what? That There seemed to be some debate about that. It's like, did he uncover something and release it into the world again after it had been sealed away? Or was it more just by finding this at this time, it was like an omen. It was like a, a sign of things to come. The demon will be returning soon. And um, in the... Um, in the scenes, like later in the movie, when the 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 younger priest records Reagan speaking as the demon, and then he finds out it's being played backwards, you can hear in some of the recordings that the demon says the name Marin, and that's Max von yes. Sato's character. Right, says the name a couple of times, and so again, from what I was reading, that's supposed to be a connection that apparently this demon has had previous dealings with with Max von Sato's character, because um, it talks about how this his character had done an exorcism previously. And so I think the implication is that it's this same demon and it's like, so it's, it's almost like he knows, oh, well, if someone's going to come to find me, it's going to be this old man. It's a stretch, right? right. I mean, it might be, it might be, the dots might be connected a little more clearly in the book. And that mm-hmm. might've been the intent of, of what's happening in the movie. I don't think you need to know those things for it to work, but I don't think they did a good enough job connecting the dots that you absolutely make that connection. But I, I don't think they need to. Yeah, because like later in the movie, the cop that was played by Lee J. Cobb, he finds that little stone statue, if you remember, at the bottom of the stairs that leads up to the house. I don't think it was that one. I think it was something similar. I think it was supposed to be something Reagan had made because when he's at the house interviewing the mom, he sees the various clay statues. And again, this was something I was reading the trivia that it's supposed to be like um, an indication that the, the guy who was killed 
had had been rummaging around in Regan's belongings. And apparently in the book, there's a strong implication that he had been molesting her. And that was why the demon had killed him was sort of out of revenge. Um, again, not clear in the movie, mm-hmm. but I don't think it needs to be. So for me, for the movie, like I said, I don't know why that whole aspect of the movie was even there. That whole opening scene and all that. Like, why couldn't they just have this girl, like, get possessed and then perform this exorcism? You know, like, to me, it, it added, like, 20 minutes to this movie. It's lengthy. Yeah. It didn't really need it. But um, so going back to the priest for a second, I just was thinking the the the, the Damien Karras. Uh, they set his character up pretty well, I feel, too, because he's like this mm-hmm. faithless priest, or at least he's questioning his faith. And I get how they set up the story with his mother. But again, I feel like there's some unnecessary scenes in this film. And this is why this film is flawed in a couple places for me. I wasn't sure why the scene with her in the insane asylum was there. It seemed a bit out of place. I, I guess maybe because, you know, he didn't have a lot of money, I guess. But I, I mean, I know the American healthcare system sucks, but... If you can't afford proper health care, do they just put sick old people in insane asylums? Like, I didn't I didn't really understand that. That kind of. Thing. Yeah. I, again, I, I wasn't 100 percent clear on that myself. I mean, I think it was just there for character development to establish a relationship between the, the, the priest and his mother so that when she dies, you really get the sense that when, you know, the demon can then lean on that. And, and in the, in the course of the exorcism that the demon calls out and like, uh, you know, when he, when the mm-hmm. priest goes, he says like, you know, Oh, your mother's in here. Do you want to talk to her? And he see, she makes like vulgar statements about, Oh, your mother's doing this and that in, in hell. And, um, so I think, I think the fact that she's died and we've seen that there's this relationship, he has this guilt about not being there when she dies. I think those scenes are necessary to really establish like, but the demon's going to be able to pry its way into this guy's uh, into this guy's psyche by by leaning on this guilt that he's got. Yeah, I, just, I, I agree with that, but I, I feel it could have been accomplished without some of those scenes. One thing I really liked about this movie, though, was the pace. I like how it it moves quite slow to start with, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the way that they're dealing with this, this, this kind of slow, like, the possession takes place slowly at first. Yes. And then there's all these little clues along the way. Captain Howdy, like you mentioned, the Ouija board. Yeah. She comes into her mom's bed to sleep because she's like, my bed was shaking. And then there's right. the sounds up in the attic and then that statue of the Virgin Mary at the church that's vandalized. And 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 so I like that it, it kind of starts out slow, but, but, but I found that pacing to be very deliberate, you know? Um, yes. You agree with that? Like, I, yeah, the thing yeah. is, I know modern audiences want that instant payoff. You know, they want to get right to it. But I like the fact that this kind of just sets itself up. Yeah, no, I, I actually I really like the pacing of this. And that's I mean, having watched the Banshees of Inishirin earlier this week where the pacing is awful. It's so slow and so boring. Um, it, it, this one didn't I didn't bother me. I mean, this one runs two full hours as well. But I thought. You know, the pacing is deliberate. And uh, and then when you sort of get to that last 20 to 30 minutes where you start to have that payoff, you really feel like you've earned it. Um, so, no, I, I thought it was great. Now, I do want to touch on something you said. I was hoping mm-hmm. we'd be able to swing around to this was you talked about the noises in the attic. So the, the sound of this movie, the noise of this movie, I thought that really stuck out to me just how much of this movie there are distracting and unpleasant noises happening. The volume is loud. Like in the course of the scene, there, there things are taking place and there's 
noises around and so much of it, especially in the first half, like almost all the scenes that happened in Iraq, there is tremendous amount of sound going on around the character. Um, and then a lot of the other scenes, like most of the scenes with the demon with, during the possession, there's like this, there's a sound involved, the growling, the the speaking with the harsh voice. But even little scenes like um, when the policeman is uh, is interviewing the the younger priest, and when they first meet up together, it's relatively quiet. But then very quickly as they start to walk, they end up stopping in front of an, uh, a tennis court where people are playing tennis. And there's like you can hear kids in the background like playing sports. And it, again, it's this this background noise just seems to be ever present in this movie. You don't have any moments where it's just quiet and peaceful until the end. And that's like one of the only times in the movie where it's just there is no other sound going on. It's just Every every part of this movie, there's like this distracting noise. It's I, I fully believe is deliberately there mm -hmm. to to you know as the audience member sort of get you in that annoyed mood, but also to really clearly mean like these characters don't have a minute of peace. And uh, and I think it was a very deliberate choice. And and I, I I really it really stood out to me when I was watching it. One thing I did notice, I want to mention because I always pull these things in, the actor that played Karis's uncle, his real name was Titos Vandis. He was in one of my favorite comedies from the 80s, Young Doctors in Love. He played Sal Bonafetti in that movie. Michael Richards was trying to assassinate him in the hospital in that movie. And so I just I just wanted to mention that because I, I, I didn't notice that. So um, say, you mentioned that movie a few times. I've I, still uh, never seen it. Oh, it's so good. Um, maybe we'll have to get to that because it was in 1983. So that might mm -hmm. actually fall into our anniversary ones here. We'll have to see. Um, so... I, again, going back to the pacing for a second, I really liked how you don't really see anything shocking from her until when the doctor goes to give her the sedative and then she like spits in his face and uses the F word. Yeah. And I just mentioned that scene because I love it because the doctor takes the mom out into the hallway to try to explain his diagnosis and lights up a smoke. Oh, right yeah. there in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor in the hallway. So I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, and again, just with the pacing of the film, because I just, I think it's so important. I love how it slowly sort of ups the disturbing elements. Like I say, she yes. spits on the doctor and she tears at him. Then she pees on the floor. And then she yeah, tells that the was completely unexpected. I was yeah. like, wow, they're really going for it in this movie. Yeah, she tells the priest he's going to die, right? And then, I'm, but one thing, I wasn't sure, why did she keep opening the windows in her room? Like, I, I thought the devil likes it, like, hot, not I don't cold, know. you know, living in hell and all. Um, so I think or, it was just an effect. I don't yeah, know. Again, I, I have no insight into that whatsoever. You know, you you mentioned something earlier, and it's, it's worth cycling back to, like, how we think of horror movies differently today than mm -hmm. we did back in, like, 73, 74. You know, because now horror movies are defined, you know, as you mentioned, just kind of like slasher films. But really, the best horror films aren't about gruesome murders or gore. They're about something horrifying, you know, and in that regard, I think this movie, The Exorcist is, is a true horror film, you know, and, and like, you're not a big fan of horror movies, you know, but I guess that's, that's mostly because of slasher movies, I guess. Like mostly. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm not interested in, or jump scares. Like I'm not interested in that, yeah. but, but I, I really like this. Like I, I like this more than I expected to. Um, I would definitely recommend this. To somebody who either has never seen it or who has not seen it in a long time, I wouldn't necessarily, like I said at the outset, I wouldn't necessarily classify it as horror in the sense of today's horror, but certainly more like you're saying, it's more horrific. 
And it's it's just like uh, I found it relied on a lot of the same kind of treatment as Jaws, where you don't necessarily see all the bad things happening. A lot of it's like the way it's shot, like you just it's implied and it's what your mind fills in the blanks with. And and I think that does a better job than anything that the director could have actually put on screen for some of those scenes. I want to mention the puke, too, because it's a really famous scene in the movie with that projectile vomit. What the hell was that supposed to be? It's like all green and gross. Is it supposed to be like pea soup or something well i mean from the behind the scenes they use pea soup but I, I i don't know i think it's just supposed to be like bile from her stomach who knows like yeah again in the book they probably give it a better explanation i think on screen just making it that color so that it stands out so much but who knows and just just think it back to like you mentioned before like about how religion you know is one of the reasons why it makes it impactful you know she's swearing at the priests you know there's the whole idea that the devil could come to earth you know, in inside of a person. And then I think it's interesting how they try to use science in the film to explain away stuff. You know, like she's got a brain tumor or it's it's, it's a lesion. But all of these things happen then that, that cannot be explained. Like she's speaking in tongues and she's speaking backwards and she speaks in the voice of the, the, the priest's mom and the homeless guy on the subway. She pulls his voice that says, help me on her stomach. The, the bed's levitating. There's just so much, you, you know, it's not science. You know, you cannot explain this stuff away. Well, and I found that, again, 50 years ago, the the idea that the child needed to see a psychiatrist was like very uh, taboo. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, no, not my kid. Like, like it was a stigma. Like you could clearly tell the mom didn't want to go down that avenue because 50 years ago, psychiatry was not regarded as as um you know, an acceptable form of treatment. And so that sort of stood out to me a little bit as well. Just sort of that sign of the times where if today they said, oh, your kid needs to go to therapy, you'd be like, yep, no problem. And and you would make that arrangement. Um, One thing that I, I just was thinking about, Linda Blair was 13 or 14 when she made this movie. So mm-hmm. she wouldn't have even, even been able to go to the theater to see it when it came out because it was rated R. Although I guess back in the 70s, that was different because rated R back then, meant kids could get in if they had a parent. So the movie had to be rated X to prevent any minors from getting in. But the studio, they weren't going to have any of that, right? They're not going to rate it X because like that, that was also a time where it's getting kind of confused with like triple X porn movies, you know, so they didn't want to rate it X. Midnight Cowboy with John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, I'm pretty sure that had an X rating. It was back in 69 and it won best picture, but mm-hmm. this movie was rated R. I remember. So I guess, I guess yeah, I was going to say, I read that where yeah. the, the, the movie's creators expected it to get an X and mm-hmm. were worried. And then it didn't get an X at all. And apparently when they went for an explanation of like, well, you know, we thought we would get an X rating for this, this, and this, the, the people who were grading the movie said, we feel this is a, a, like an artful movie and we think people should have the right to see it. And if we give it an X, we know a lot of people won't and, and we want your movie to succeed. And it was sort of that inside baseball of, you know, the person make the person doing the judging was sort of already on your side. So they were able to bend the rules in your favor. But from what I read, there were some theaters that just arbitrarily gave it an X rating, uh, both in America and in Europe. And um, so then there was the phenomenon of the Exorcist bus tours where, um, you know, entrepreneurial people were like, well, I can rent a bus and just drive people to the next county or the next city and they can go watch The Exorcist and I can make money doing these bus tours back and forth. So, you know, it's it's like that thing. 
people want to do something, they're going to figure out a way to do it. And in this case, if a middleman was able to make a few money renting a few dollars, renting a bus, these kinds of things happen. So, well, before we wrap up, one thing I just want to cycle back to is something we talked about at the beginning. Like if this movie was released today in its original form, yep. would it scare people or do you think it would be considered lame? I don't think it would be either of those things. I don't think it would scare people, but I don't think it would be considered lame. I think that it would be, it would just be considered like a, like a suspenseful drama. And um, I, I think it would still do well. I don't think it would do the nearly the kind of money it did in the seventies, because I don't think you would have that hype around people saying, don't see this. This is the devil promoting devil worship. You would be like, here it is. And, and um, of course, all the all the big scenes that we've talked about would all be in the trailer on the Internet. So people would be like, mm -hmm. oh, well, OK, yeah, I'll go see it. I think it would just do OK. And I think it would I think it would um, hit with people who are like film buffs like you and I would be like, wow, this is like, look at this movie. And it would it would have a longevity around it. But I don't think it would do great box office numbers. I think it would get a lot of award nominations, a lot of good press from critics and do middle of the road numbers at the theater. As a, as opposed to back then when like audiences flocked to it, but uh, yeah. two things stand out to me back then. Like in 1973, no one had ever seen anything like this, of anything yeah. like this. So it was no, shocking. Exactly. And number two, there is a huge difference between watching a movie in the theater and watching it on the streaming services at home. Oh, for sure. The dark room, the, the big screen, the sound, that shared experience, especially with a movie like this. You know, back then when, when people are fainting and screaming and puking all around you, like that's got to have a, an effect on audiences. So I, it's almost like this movie was more of an experience than a movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and like so many things, if you're watching it on a giant screen versus you're like in the theater, just you're, you're taking it in in a different way. You're experiencing the movie yeah. in a different way. Like I watched it on a 60 inch flat screen in a dark room and, and that was fine. But I think if I was seeing this in a giant movie theater, again, it would leave a different impression on you, as, as would most movies. Um, it's it's also worth, worth mentioning before we wrap up that they did make a sequel, The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, in 1977. And it was directed by John Borman. He did Deliverance. And he did uh, Excalibur in 81, too. Uh, but that was like, it's not good. And, and I, I haven't seen it, but I mean, like, I've read a lot of stuff about it. I remember a lot of people saying it's like one of the worst movies ever made. I read somewhere that in 2023 and this year, they're making a remake of this movie. Yeah, I, uh, I think I read that as well. And didn't they make oh. a third? I thought there were three sequels, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I think Exorcist the, uh, 2, Exorcist 3, and then yeah. I heard they also had a TV show uh, that was sort of like The Exorcist, The Next Generation, where Gina Davis played... Regan grown up as a woman and apparently it got rave reviews from critics and just tanked like it was on network TV and nobody watched it. So it got canceled after one season. So, you know, it's, well, it's and that's, I think sequel, like, the question like, of how would it work if it was released today? Yeah, I think when you have a sequel like Exorcist 2, The Heretic, it's just it's it like ruins Cameron everything. Run 2 or Smoking yeah. the Bandit 2. It's People like, are just like, I don't really know. Even if the sequels. third one or fourth one is okay, we're not going to watch it, you know? Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see if they make, like, I guess all the things we're talking about, like, will it fly today? I guess you can wait and see with this 2023 remake, but I think it's just a bad idea. Let it go. You want to watch The Exorcist as a remake in 2023? Go back and watch the original. That's what yeah. I'd say. Do you want to give it a rating out of 10? Probably give it like an eight or maybe even an eight and a half. I think I might go eight and a half as well. 
So I think we would agree on that. I thought, yeah. you know, it was, that was no, I'm, good. I, it was yeah. good. I enjoyed it. I'm glad you had me watch it. It's not something mm-hmm. I would have picked on my own, but yeah. uh, for a 50 year old movie, you can see why it, uh, why it holds up and why people still hold it in high regard. No, it was good. I really enjoyed it. All right. So here we go. Fun with caveman. All right, Derek. So since this was my movie, it's over to you. I haven't been put through my paces all that much in this segment for a while now. So here's your chance to uh, well, ask yeah. some trivia questions. So, so. so I'm having I'm having uh, flashbacks to like the first season where like Yancey would have all these trivia questions and then during the course of the podcast, you would answer them all before I had a chance to ask you any questions. Mm-hmm. And you already did that for a few of these. So oh, some of sorry. these are going to be pretty easy because oh. you already answered them. But um, you mentioned the great Max von Sydow or Max von Sydow. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Let's mm-hmm. call him. Uh, so he had... Uh, a very diverse IMDb uh, listing. He was in so many things over the course of his career and the course of his life. And like one of his last big roles was on the Game of Thrones. He had a he had a small part in uh, a few episodes. So I mean, he was constantly in things that had a lot of eyeballs. So people recognize him. And to your point, I think depending on who you ask, people are going to recognize him for different things. So so we're going to go and we're going to play uh, one of the games that we do all the time. Good old pick the flick. Pick the flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. Oh, so this should be fun. So it's all Max von Sydow. These are all films? Max von oh Sydow God. movies. Well, I mentioned and a couple of them off the off the You top mentioned there, a few of them. Yeah, most of the ones you mentioned are in this trivia. So he's we'll been a working can... actor forever. This he is has done so much stuff. Oh, this is gonna um, be hard. So I've got. Uh, I think there's about 15 questions here. Oh, the last God. few questions, I have like some little trivia bits that I'll throw okay. in after you answer the question. So. Sure. We'll, we'll we'll get to it as we get to it. Okay, so these are in no particular order, but we're going to start with the year 1984. He had right. two movies in 1984. I'm going to give them to both. So the first one from 1984, I'll read mm-hmm. you what it's about. All right. A young nobleman leads a rebellion against his father's evil nemesis to free their homeland from a tyrant's rule. He was in D- Dune. Was it Dune? Yeah, it's oh, nice. I had to really change the wording of that because it had like fighting in the desert and all that. I'm like, nah, it's water. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Nice. Okay, the other one from 1984. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to change this one at all. A man who can enter and manipulate people's dreams is recruited by a government agency to help cure the president of the United States of his nightmares about nuclear war, but stumbles upon an assassination plot. That sounds like Dreamscape, but like, yeah, he knew that too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I love Dennis that. Dennis Quaid, right? Yeah. yeah I, yeah, I, I remember that. that not too long ago. It yeah. was good. I really like yeah. it. It's cheesy, but I liked it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to go. Uh, we're going to go way. There's a lot of movies here that are newer than 1989. I'm sorry, but uh, uh, well, they were pretty big movies. So you should, you should do okay. I think here's I one. This one was from 2002 oh, in a future where a special police unit can arrest murder, murderers before they commit their crimes, an officer from that unit is himself accused of a future murder. So I don't, I haven't seen this, but that sounds like um, Spielberg's Minority Report. It absolutely oh, is. <laughs> yes, I didn't know that Max yeah. von Sydow was in that, but yeah, no, it's really good. It's yeah. uh, I, I also got Colin it. Farrell. We were just talking about oh, him. He's right. in this too, and uh, Tom Cruise. No, it's really good. If you haven't seen it, you should you should give it a watch. It's quite oh. it's quite good. All right, we're gonna go back to your wheelhouse. Nineteen eighty six. That's that's a little bit better for me. 
All right. Between two Thanksgivings, two years apart, a woman's husband falls in love with his sister, uh, with her sister, pardon me, while her hypochondriac ex-husband rekindles his relationship with her other sister. Well, this sounds like sister and hypochondriac. It sounds an awful like Woody Allen's Hannah and her sisters. Yep, that's the one. He was in that? I'm trying to remember. Apparently, now. I don't know. I've yeah, never seen it. Yeah, I guess he was. Okay. Let me think about it. Oh, take gosh. your word for it. All right. All right. I can't believe I'm doing this good. I am. Max months. We haven't even gotten the ones you talked about yet. Jesus. Okay. Uh, this one's from 1981. As right. allied POWs prepare for a soccer game against the German national team to be played in Nazi-occupied Paris, oh, the this. French resistance and British officers are making plans for the team's escape. I remember this only because I went to the movie theater to see this with my friends. This was victory. Yes, and it was. Pele was in this, and Max von Sydow was like one of the German soldiers or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I remember that. Yes. Yes. Never seen it, but uh, yeah, they they bring it up on uh, on some of my podcasts from time to time. So I, I feel like Michael I know. Michael Caine was in Yeah, I, know. I went to see that in the Yeah, I had a big cast. So I, was I remember when they, they broke the guy's arm against the bed. Oh, yeah, I remember that movie. Okay, here's the next one. This is from 2010. Okay. In 12th century England, a freedom fighter and his band of marauders confront corruption in a local village and lead an uprising against the crown that will forever alter the balance of world power. I have no idea. This was directed by Ridley Scott, if that helps. In 2010? I have no idea. All right. It was Robin Hood. Oh. With Russell Crowe as Robin Hood. There was a there was a Robin Hood with Russell Crowe. Yeah, believe it or not. I remember Never there was one with, there was awful. one with um uh, Kevin Costner. But oh I yeah. didn't know there was and one. then there was another one that just oh, came out geez. like two or three years ago. This is this is one of those properties that they keep going back to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, we go back in your wheelhouse. 1983. Oh, this is better. Okay. Please let me finish reading the whole question before you answer. Oh, I think I know where this one is because I already mentioned this one. Two hosers get jobs <laughs> at the local brewery only to learn that something is rotten with the state of it. Would it be Strange Brew? Yes, yes. How did you ever get that? Yes, of course. We've done that one here on the podcast. I, I had to remove the Bob and Doug McKenzie name. He was from- Brewmeister Smith. Hey, he yes. was Brewmeister. Yep, yeah, I have I all the that. names of all his roles yep. here. So Love it. Okay. Uh, the next few questions, I got a little trivia t- tidbits after you answer okay. the questions. So, I'll do my best. This one, this one is, we're going in our way back machine. This is a little outside of your comfort zone because it's so old from uh. 1957. All right. A knight returning to Sweden after the Crusades seeks answers about life death and the existence of God as he plays chess against the Grim Reaper during the Black Plague. Um, Was that uh, Wild Strawberries? It was not. You want to take a second crack? Oh, no, that was Seven Seal. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Of course, it was Uh, Bergman's. Yes, so that's the trivia is how many films do you think Max von Sato appeared in that were directed by Ingmar Bergman? Well, I think there was two because he did that one and he did Wild Strawberry. So I'll say the two of them. You are so far off. He did 13 movies with him. Wow. Yeah, I was wow. shocked when I saw that. All right. This one is right on the cusp of your uh, your comfort zone, 1990. Okay. okay, we'll see. I'll do my best. Yep. Uh, you'll probably get this one. It was a pretty big movie. The victims of an encephalitis epidemic many years ago have been catatonic ever since, but now a new drug offers the prospect of reviving them. 
That was um, Penny Marshall's Awakenings, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. Yes. All right. So we got some trivia. Okay. Max von Sydow appeared in five films that were nominated for the best Oscar picture, including this one. Can you name the other four? Uh, yes. So there was the the Exorcist. Yes. Mm, one of them else? was already in the trivia that you already answered. Well, we know it definitely wasn't Flash Gordon or Victory. So I'll, what? I'll give it to you. It was the Woody Allen one, Hannah and her sister. Oh, Hannah and her sister. Yes, it was. Uh, from 1971, a movie called The Immigrants. Okay. And then more recently in 2011, he was in a movie nominated for Best Picture called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. So he was in five yes. movies nominated yes. for Best Picture. So that's an interesting stat. All right. Next one from 1983. You should get this. Back right in my wheelhouse. Yep. In this film remake, a terrorist steals two American nuclear warheads and a British spy must find their targets before they are detonated. That was Never Say Never Again and he was Blofeld. Yes, 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 he was. Yes. And the trivia that we're going with this one is apparently mm-hmm. he was offered the title role in the very first James Bond film of Dr. No, but he hmm. passed on it. And the role of Dr. No went to, do you know? Do you know who played Dr. No? Uh, no, I don't. It was an actor named Joseph Wiseman. So oh, okay. Boncito could have been Dr. No, but passed on it apparently. Oh, so. interesting. All right. Got uh, four more coming at you here. These are all adaptations of previous work and I'll, I'll tell you about them in the course of the question so this one from 1993 okay don't answer till i read the whole question All this right. is based on a book by stephen king a mysterious new shop opens in a small town which always seems to stock the deepest desires of each shopper with a price far heavier than expected in 93 based on a stephen king book i don't know <laughs> Really? Wow, I thought you were going to get this. It's the movie Needful Things. Oh, I didn't even know that they made a movie about that. Oh. And a uh, little trivia on this one. It, it said here, uh, Max von Sydow is one of the very few actors to have played both God and the devil. He played God in a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told, which I assume is based on the Bible. And mm-hmm. in this movie, he played the devil, Needful Things. Oh, there you go. All right. All right. I got three more questions, and these are all... <laughs> All movies that are adapted from comic books. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. So this first movie is from 1980. So this is based on an American <laughs> comic strip that debuted in 1934 in mm. which a professional athlete and his friends travel to a distant planet where they have to fight evil to save the world. Flash. Ah. Yeah. He saved every one of us. Yep. Love it. Get he was one. so good as Ming the Merciless. Oh, God. Yep. So there's one. Next one. This one is a little tougher. The movie came out in 95. Okay. It's based on a British comic book that debuted in 1977. In a dystopian future, right in your wheelhouse, the most famous law enforcement officer is convicted for a crime he did not commit and must face his murderous counterpart. Mm, It's a comic book movie. I'm not sure. I have to... Take a guess. Judge Dredd. Yes, oh, Dread. <laughs> Dear luck. Yes, this is the uh, the just, Sylvester Stallone version. Yeah. Not I haven't the, seen it. With it was the, just, uh, the more recent like, updated yeah. version, just called Dread with Carl Urban, which was okay. awesome. This nice. one less so. Okay, last question. Based on a Mexican comic that mm-hmm. debuted in 1952. Okay, it is still running to this day. A young boy becomes a slave. What was the year? 
the the movie year 1982. Okay, well, the back of my wheelhouse. Okay, that's yeah. good. So yeah. the comic book debuted in 82, and pardon me, in 1952, and mm-hmm. it's about a young boy becomes a slave after his parents are killed by a savage warlord. When he grows up, he becomes a fearless, invincible fighter who gets his revenge. Oh, that's got to be Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Oh, I didn't realize that the creator of Conan was, it started as a Mexican comic book. I had to look that up. Jeez, so. that's so cool. And it's funny. Oh, you mentioned all these comic book heroes. Who is your favorite comic book hero? I'm curious to know. Oh, it's got to be Batman. Yeah? You know who mine is? I got that in there on a Max von Sydow uh, trivia part. I don't know, but there nice. it is. So I think yeah, I did pretty good. Like you so did very, very good. It really amazed me as you were going through those. I was like, okay, I think I know this one. I think I, I think I know the answer. And then I was like, oh yeah, he was in that. This guy has been in everything. He's been in so much. God, stuff. he's yeah. been in a lot of stuff. Hey, eh? yeah, Jeez, he's been in a ton that of is stuff. awesome. Okay, so. Um, I picked this for our 50th anniversary year. I picked one of the Exorcist. So it's over to you to, to pick a film that's celebrating its 50th anniversary. So what movie from 1973 do you want us to go back and watch and review and, and come back and talk about? Well, I originally was going to have us watch The Sting, which is one of my oh, like my favorite so movies. I love it. It's so it good. It is really good. But... Yeah. Even though it's from 1973, it actually takes place in 1936. So I didn't really want to do that. And then I thought, hey, American Graffiti came out in 1973. I've never seen American Graffiti. Mm -hmm. But it takes place in 1962. So I'm like, well, I really want a movie that just takes place in 1973 if we're going to do a 50th anniversary of 1973. So I'm going to go in a complete direction you probably would not expect me to. And we're going to watch... Enter the Dragon. Oh, it's Bruce Lee. I've never seen it. Wow. Okay. Never I'm seen so it, and I, I've that. I've heard great things about it. That's a good pick. This is going to be interesting. Yeah. So I actually I couldn't. I'm sorry. I couldn't find it for free on the streamers. Most places you had to rent it for five bucks. Mm-hmm. But I actually have the DVD, and I went and pulled it off the shelf today. My DVD says 25th Anniversary Edition, <laughs> 1998. I'm like oh, wow. here today. We're doing the 50th. So. I've had this DVD for 25 years. I probably haven't watched it in 25 years. I probably watched it a couple of times when I got it. But yeah, I'm looking forward to revisiting it. It does take place in 1972. Uh, Try not to laugh at the clothes and the haircuts. That's just, they were the way that things were in the 70s. But uh, no, I think this is going to be interesting. I'm looking forward. I I thought, yeah, you would probably come up with American Graffiti or something like that. But oh, that's an interesting one. I think that's good. So we'll come back next time. We're going to watch Enter the Dragon from 1973 we're going to come back and talk all about it and and i think it's a good one too because it, it does relate to today's movies as well and how does it hold up with all the action mm-hmm, and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you know the 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 martial arts and it's gonna be interesting so i think that's well good. and i think uh, I, I know sometimes you watch these movies with your wife or even with your kids although this is like a a, a quote violent martial art movie I, I think your oldest might enjoy this and yeah. honestly 50 years later i don't i don't remember there being anything in here that's like taboo i don't remember any nudity now not saying there i can't say for certain but i think you're young i think yeah. your oldest might really dig this movie no, i think we will so i'll tell you what we'll come back next time we're going to watch enter the dragon and we'll come back and review it so until next time this is chris mcbrien on behalf of myself and derek Myers, saying thanks for listening to pop culture world the pop culture podcast for the generations Thanks 
for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 